Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. Today's Americano is going to be a little bit different. We're listening to an extended version of the interview you heard on the main Spectator podcast between Lara Prendergast and Lionel Shriver. And they're talking about Trump and how American expats feel about him. So at this festival, you asked a simple question, Lionel, and the question was, how do you explain Trump? And what was your answer to that? I dodged it, okay? But uh, having uh, had some interesting conversations at the weekend... I think I have my answer now. You know, I'm I'm not a doctor. I'm just observing from the distance. But, you know, Donald Trump does display many of the signs of someone who is suffering from dementia. And uh, what really sealed it for me was looking up an old uh, interview of his uh, that he did with Oprah Winfrey in 1998. And, okay, he was still full of bombast. There were some, some of his signature arrogance was certainly there. But the way he spoke was completely different. He used complete sentences. He used a larger vocabulary. You could tell that he was speaking with intention so that he was driving toward a point. It was completely formed thought. Whether I agreed with it was another matter, but there were none of the stumbles, That there was none of the repetition, you know, the way that he uses the same word over and over again. And you didn't either have any of this um, obsessive placeholding usage, by which I mean um, a lot of ums or this very, very, very thing (laughs) and the really, 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 really great. That's what you do when you're spinning your wheels in your head and trying to fill space. That's why it's called placeholding. Is this a common, commonly held view? Have you heard other people suggesting this? I did a little nosing around on the web, and there are, are people out there who have connected the same dots. So I don't want to pretend that this is some theory that, that that's mine alone, and, and I've got this revolutionary viewpoint. But to me, it just explains so much, including new news. You know, this stuff about blurting out what could have been classified information about the Islamic State to the Russians. I mean, he's compulsively boastful, so it makes perfect sense. I mean, he, he, someone said he, said he said something like, you know, I have really great intel, or, you know, I have the best intel. It's just <laughs> pathetic. I'm pathetic. And he couldn't resist the impulse to impress, uh, even though that's not in his interest. And that impulsivity is also classic of someone who's suffering from dementia. Do you think that impulse to impress is eventually going to be what unseats him? Well, either the impulse to impress or sheer ignorance because he doesn't understand anything about government and he doesn't understand the limits of his own power. And that's really what this latest story about James Comey is about, that if Trump did indeed urge Comey to desist from investigating Michael Flynn, much less investigating his own campaign. Mm, That probably is obstruction of justice, but that's, you know, it's the same character flaw. It's, It's thinking, well, now I'm in the most powerful position in the world, so I can obviously do anything, right? Yeah. He doesn't understand the structure of his own government and therefore the limits to that power. 
And in your piece, you, you say that um, yourself and fellow Americans, you mentioned Sarah Churchwell, are struggling to kind of come up with a line about Donald Trump and what to say about him. What, what kind of things have you heard people saying, apart from the senility? Well, what's interesting is the urge in the audiences that I've spoken to for some kind of explanation. And I think that people asking these questions know perfectly well that neither I nor Sarah Churchill even is capable of giving a satisfying answer. This is such an aberration that we have a truly unfit man in this office that it just leaves everybody speechless. And sometimes it's, it may be better to just explain that you can't explain than to keep coming up with the same old tropes. I have no interest in discussing, you know, this sector of American society that feels left behind and economically deprived and hostile to globalization. It's been explored to death. And that still doesn't explain why they would elect a man like this. Something went wrong. It's fascinating to watch the system just lurch back and forth all the time, trying to accommodate him, trying to figure out what to do about him, just for the sake of political theory. It's a very interesting test of the American political system. Hmm. You know, do, do the checks and balances hold up? Can we have an unfit president? Can we deal with it? Can we get rid of him? Is the 25th Amendment going to end up being quite useful, which is really meant to be removing um, presidents who are ill? Let's see. I'm fascinated. <laughs> you say you don't want to talk about the people who voted for him, but can I ask whether you feel like the people who did vote for him are now slightly kind of recoiling in horror, or do you think this is sort of what they wanted to happen? I mean, what I sense from Vox Pops and, you know, the same news that you watch, that, that, that he has a core of supporters who are going to stick with him to the very end. And then there, I think there's another level of people who perhaps voted more in accordance with their own self-interest or perceived self-interest uh, than perhaps uh, personal loyalty to him. And I think that sector is getting disenchanted, if only that he's getting very little done. That sector in particular wants that tax reform passed. And right now that's completely stalled with all this uh, FBI nonsense. Do you think it's, you know, the people that you speak to about Trump, do you think the prevailing emotion right now is embarrassment or terror? Oh, it's definitely an a fascinating mixture of the two. In your piece, you also suggest, you, you say you have this rule of thumb not to discuss ideas that clearly won't happen. So you say that Jeremy Corbyn won't become prime minister. But do you think we made a slight mistake with Donald Trump not taking him seriously and the, the idea that he might become president seriously? Well, obviously we did. And there is a, I suppose, a distant possibility that Jeremy Corbyn will become prime minister, and I'm wrong, and it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> but um, I doubt it. The polls are pretty drastic, much more so than in the U.S. election. And, you know, yes, polls have sometimes been notoriously inaccurate, but, I mean, look at the French election. Again, that was a, a huge 20-point spread, and, and it was borne out in the election. So they're not always wrong. I was trying to make the larger point that, you know, we're all suffering from information overload. And so I try to keep up with more than one newspaper. I watch um, several news shows a day. It's amazing I get anything done. <laughs> um, so I'm always on the lookout for some kind of a principle to apply 
to edit the news down and keep the time I'm investing down. And when I'm being disciplined, what I try to do is not read about what might happen, things that people are supposing or proposing that aren't going to happen, suggesting that aren't going to happen. And, and that, uh, that goes for the electoral process in the main also. I mean, it's interesting in and of itself to follow this election and, and see what the Tories and Labour are proposing, you know, since I, I follow the larger story of British politics quite closely. But it's only for that, you know, general information and also entertainment that I might get out of it that it's worth doing, because otherwise, you know, we might as well, I'd be perfectly happy to tune out um, and tune back in on the 8th and you know, get the results. We squander a lot of our attention on process. And if we're honest with ourselves, often all we really care about is not the process, but the results. And if we were more disciplined in our news consumption, we would skip to the results and stop reading all those articles and stop reading all those little campaign bus stories or what have you. Just read a book. <laughs> that was self-interest. <laughs> sure, lots of journalists would love that. What do Americans make of what's going on in Britain at the moment? You know, I have to confess, I have not been back to the U.S. since September, so I have little to go by. I know that there was a very um, prejudiced and appalled reaction in the mainstream media in the U.S., and I don't think the impression that it, uh, Brexit uh, passed because of uh, rampant racism has been especially corrected in the news. You don't read about it as much as you used to. I mean, Sarah Lyle in the New York Times did a piece on how coming back to London, everything was different and, and everyone was, all the immigrants were terrified and I thought it was ridiculous. You know, I like her journalism. I want to go on the record. She's um, sometimes, think she, she's left Britain and I think she was feeling mournful about London not being hers anymore. And that's what made it feel so different. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast anytime on iTunes. So please do and have a very nice weekend. 